You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to episode 85. Bob, we made it to 85. I can't believe it, and I don't know why they're still listening. I know. It's the 85th episode of the Library Pros Podcast. I'm Chris. And as always, I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you from the booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, during the pandemic, and the Emma S. Clark Memorial Library in Setauket, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast, so please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review or tell someone about us because word of mouth is the best way to help our podcast listenership grow. So today joining us is Dr. Eric Cole. With more than 30 years of network security experience, Dr. Eric Cole is a distinguished cybersecurity expert and keynote speaker who helps organizations curtail the risk of cyber threats. Dr. Cole has worked with a variety of clients ranging from Fortune 500 companies to top international banks to the CIA. He's been featured, a featured speaker at many security events and has been interviewed on several chief media outlets such as CNN, CBS News, Fox News, and 60 Minutes. Dr. Cole has been a member of many key organizations, including the Commission on Cybersecurity for the 44th President, SME and Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Executive, he's on Purdue University Executive Advisory Board, and so much more. Uh, let's see what else he's done. Dr. Eric Hall, excuse me, doctor. As I'll a, forgive you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a world-renowned cybersecurity entrepreneur and founder of Secure Anchor Consulting, Eric understands the dangers of cybersecurity and knows how to build very successful companies. You have a very good writer, Eric. So we're going to speak with Eric about some organizational things libraries can do to keep patrons, staff, and the organization safe, and and some simple things librarians can recommend to patrons. But first, let's get to know Eric. So for full disclosure, I've known Eric since we were in college in the 90s. Uh, I met Eric through our mutual friend, Tony uh, Ventimiglia, who I went to college with. And it's a pleasure to speak with my old friend again. And off mic, we were just having a ton of laughs talking about all kinds of funny things that we used to do. Um, and it's really an honor to have him on the show. Now that he's a doctor, Eric Cole, I, think, I still think that's hysterical. So tell us what brought you into the f- in, first into this field of cybersecurity, because I assume that it all started in the early 90s with your first job. So tell us about that. So when I was growing up, I was always fascinated with architecture and buildings and bridges. And I still am today. And a family friend in the mid-80s said, Eric, everything's going to computers. Why don't you major in computer science and then you can do whatever you want? So that seemed like good advice. So I majored in computer science. And my second semester, I was a little bored with the classes. So I went down to the co-op agency at New York Tech. And coincidentally, they said, Eric, tomorrow the CIA is recruiting on campus do you want to try out? And uh, you'll know that that's one of the things where we're being a boring, weird person actually is impressed at the CIA is impressed by that. So, so that was actually good that I was pretty bored and a, a super geek. Uh, so I got the job and essentially for eight years working at the CIA was a professional hacker, uh, learning how to break into systems, find vulnerabilities. And then to be honest with you, after doing that for eight years, I got bored out of my mind. <laughs> in, right? You could always find vulnerabilities. So then I switched to defense, uh, started and sold several companies. So I'm sort of the entrepreneur cybersecurity guy and just love 
helping organizations be safe. And I consider myself on a mission to make cyberspace a safe place to live, work, and raise a family. I just like the pause. That when, when you introduced them, the pause after the CIA was great. They're like, and he works for the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so, Eric, it's awesome to have you. And since you started uh, when cybersecurity really was in its infancy, like we talked about beforehand, before even Windows NT was really on the market, uh, tell us how you have seen both the risks and battle for security evolve over the last couple of years. So, so yeah, it's, it's funny because in the 90s, if I went to a cocktail party or ran into somebody and I said, I work at cybersecurity, they sort of looked at you like, oh, you're one of those weird people. And they like kept their kids away from you and <laughs> nobody talked to you. Uh, and today, uh, now when you say you work at cybersecurity, people are like, wow, that's the coolest thing on the planet. So on the one hand, there's a lot more awareness today where people are at least aware of the term cybersecurity. However, a lot of individuals and organizations are still very vulnerable because the number one thing I run across when I talk to folks, uh, librarians and others, is they always go, we're not a target. Well, why would anyone target us? We're not some crazy government organization. No one's going to come after us. But what you need to remember is if you have information, if you have computers, you're a target. So the big thing that I always share with people is that Anybody, anywhere, anyplace, anytime, if you're a parent or work anywhere, you need to remember two things. You are a target. Your family is a target. Your kids are a target. And cybersecurity is your responsibility. Yeah, that's heavy. That's right. So on top of all these things that you've accomplished in your career, and I'm still giggling, you've accomplished things in your career. Cause- I, I'm going to make you call me Dr. Cole, by the way. Uh, but Bob can call me Eric, but Chris, you need to call me Dr. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah, if you can't tell, Eric and Chris grew up, which is why I'm allowed to call uh, Dr. Cole Eric, and Chris has to call him Dr. Cole. <laughs> so, perfect. I'm going to laugh every time I say Dr. Cole because it's just hysterical. <laughs> At least one of your two friends was successful, Chris. That's good. <laughs> well, I think he went to school with Dr. Pepper. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. So, okay. So on top of all of this, these great accomplished things that you've done in your career – you're also an author, right? So tell me how many books you've written and what they're about. Uh, so I currently have seven uh, published books, book, uh, which is written, but it comes out in May, is called Cyber Crisis. So what I did is my first six books were very technical. So Network Security Bible, Hackers Beware, Advanced Persistent Threat, because I was really focused on educating technical people on the challenges and issues with cybersecurity. But what I realized four years ago is the problem today is not that we don't have educated technical people. It's that parents, teachers, doctors, non-technical people don't really understand the real threats and the real challenges that are out there. So my seventh book, which came out two years ago, Online Danger, is really focused on parents and teachers on understanding what the challenges and threats are and what they can do to protect themselves and the kids. And then my recent book, Cyber Crisis, is really for businesses to help organizations understand what's really happening. Because I know this is going to shock everyone, but what's in the media right, isn't the reality of the situation. So what's the real threats that are out there and what we can do to protect and secure ourselves? I guess, Chris, we're going to have links for those folks to take a look at those books yeah. afterwards right? i'll have eric send me links so we could put all this stuff together or i could just throw it into amazon i'm sure it's there if amazon's secure enough for you uh something that is fascinating for both chris and i is that you are not only a cybersecurity expert but you're also an entrepreneur um tell us about the businesses that you have started and what is your current endeavor 
So when I left the CIA, and it's one of those things where I do not regret working for the CIA. It was a great experience, amazing people. But one of the things I learned is I don't do well taking direction from other people. Chris, you're not allowed to laugh too loud on that one. Uh, so so uh, I, I left and I'm like, okay, I need to be my own boss. So I, I met up with a group of folks uh, where we started a company called TSGI, the SciTech Grouping. It was a government contractor. And we eventually sold that to Lockheed Martin. And typically when Lockheed Martin buys companies, they're really buying the contracts and the employees and the, the owners and management staff they get rid of. But I ran into the CEO, Bob Stevens, of Lockheed at the time, and he kept me on as his chief scientist. So essentially, I traveled the world whenever there were issues or challenges with cybersecurity. I would essentially get the call at 2 a.m. in the morning and have to jump on a plane and I'll be able to solve those problems. Then I was recruited by McAfee, which is a large software vendor, and redesigned their entire intellectual property suite. And then we ended up selling that to Intel a few years later. And then since then, I've been running my own company, Secure Anchor, where I'm really focused on thought leadership of really helping organizations understand what is an effective cybersecurity strategy and putting together a roadmap that actually meets the threats that are out there and fixes the real problems. Because one of the things you see, whether it's a large hotel chain or a healthcare organization, you see these companies in the news that are spending millions of dollars on security. They have hundreds of people on their staff and they still get compromised for two and a half years without detecting it because they're not fixing the real problems that really matter. As you're saying this, I'm just thinking of the person who just downloaded the free screensaver. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway. No, it's, it's funny you say that because that, that, that's one of my big pieces of advice is uh, stay away from the F word. Uh, I hate the F word. I can't stand the F word. I wish it wasn't in the dictionary. And of course, I'm referring to free. P- people don't realize, especially with iPhones and uh, Android devices, Free is not free. It, I always have people go, Eric, there's a free app and there's a $2.99 version of the app. Why would anyone be stupid enough to pay $2.99? I always pay $2.99 because here's what you have to remember is if you're doing the free, they are using all of your data and information to market and sell to make money. If you're paying $2.99, then you're paying the money and your data is protected and safe. And a perfect example of this is the number one flashlight app in the Apple store. It has been downloaded over 14 million times. And you're ready for this? It's made in China. And when you install it, it requires that you turn on your microphone, your camera, and access to all your pictures. Now question, why does a flashlight app (laughs) access your microphone and your camera? They are monitoring, spying, and watching on you, but people just don't understand that simple things as free are probably one of the most dangerous things out there for our devices. Okay. Now that you just scared the crap out of me, I'm going to go through all my apps and see which ones are free and delete them all. Delete that flashlight app real quick. Oh, man. This scary stuff. I knew you were going to scare us, Eric. You're supposed to make us laugh. I just want to know why the lights going on and off in my office. Eric, can you stop that? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we're going to chat with Dr. Eric Cole about what libraries, like most organizations, can do to continue to protect themselves, their patrons, and staff from things like the dark web. 
So we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or ebooks. I hope you'll check it out. We are back with Dr. That's right, Dr. Eric Cole. So when talking to organizations and especially information technology professionals that are at the backbone of most every organization now, what do you recommend with regard to server security and what is the one thing that you feel like should be done as like an extra layer of security that some IT people may not know or, or want to do? So with a lot of the security advice, it's fairly basic common sense, but a lot of people don't do it. So most important, you want to make sure that you're running the latest version of the operating system. You don't want to be running outdated versions like Windows 7. You want to make sure that you're fully patched and up to date. And while not perfect, you do want to run endpoint security. And I don't care which one, they're, they're all pretty similar out there. So pick whichever one gives you the best deal. But, but you really want to have that core level of protection. And then most importantly, the two most dangerous applications on planet Earth are web browsers and email clients. I know, Chris, you thought I was going to say Angry Birds, but or, or TikTok. <laughs> TikTok is close, but, uh, but it's web browsers and email clients. So you just want to be really careful of with any emails, what you click on and what attachments you open, because most of the way you're going to get malware from an individual standpoint is going to be clicking on a link, or opening an attachment that looks legit, but is really malicious. And probably the big piece of advice I would give with uh, whether you're e-commerce or banking applications or anything like that, the good news is most of these have security built in. The bad news is it's turned off by default. So two things you want to do. You want to turn on what we call two-factor authentication. Passwords, maybe were secure in the 90s. They're definitely outdated. You want to stay away from traditional passwords. You want to turn on your two-factor. This is where you enter in your name and an initial password. You get text, a one-time password, really strong, robust. The second thing is you want to turn on account notification. So if somebody's trying to access your account, you get notification so you can take action, especially with the COVID over the last six to nine months. We have seen the number of bank account hacks increase by 300%. And I know you might say, hey, I don't have a lot of money. Well, guess what? These attackers know that if they try to transfer even thousands of dollars from accounts, that triggers all the alerts. But at most banks, if you're doing an EFT under 500, it doesn't go through normal protocol. So what they're doing, instead of trying to steal a million dollars from one person, they're going to target 20,000 people and steal 499 from all their accounts because that's not going to typically generate alerts. Now, if you put on 
account notification. When somebody tries to do that, you'll get an alert and you can actually stop it because the problem with bank fraud, you have 24 hours. If you don't catch it within 24 hours, the money is gone. It's been transferred so many times. And if it turns out it's because of a weak password or something on your side, you're actually liable, not the bank. Well, that's a joy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> Dr. Cole, so libraries have always been op about open and free communication and information. One of the biggest things libraries do is they offer free Wi-Fi. Uh, we all know that open Wi-Fi networks like the ones you see at Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts uh, are a necessity especially in communities where internet in the home may be unobtainable. But we always hear how scary and insecure and unsafe public Wi-Fi is. Uh, could you take a minute and explain for our listeners why it's dangerous, even in our own buildings, and what we can do to protect ourselves, and even advise patrons who enter the building what they can do to protect themselves while using open Wi-Fi networks? Absolutely. The, the problem with open Wi-Fi is the information that you're sending over that Wi-Fi is unencrypted and available. And what a lot of people don't realize is when you're connected to Wi-Fi, text messages, email messages, web surfing, any of that stuff is open and available. I'll tell you, I always joke around. I used to do a lot of conferences in Las Vegas. And very often on a Friday or Saturday evening, instead of reading Fifty Shades of Grey, you just go in and turn on a sniffer and you just sniff all the text messages I'll tell you, there's some people with a lot more exciting lives than me. I mean, it's I had to look up a few terms and stuff on there, but people just don't realize that their information is open and visible and available on those Wi-Fi networks. So what you want to do, it's real easy and simple. You only have to set it up once. You want to make sure on your cell phone, your computer, or any other device you're using over public Wi-Fi, you download something called a V. PN. It stands for Virtual Private Network. If you just put free space VPN into the iStore, the Apple Store, you'll get uh, several of those popping up. And what you do is you install it on your device. It takes 30 seconds to install. And once it's set up, it's transparent. And this is what I use when I used to travel uh, a lot with airports and hotels. And what it now does is it automatically encrypts all of your communications. So now I can use Wi-Fi and if somebody is running a sniffer or trying to gather information or details, it'll be encrypted and they won't be able to see the information or get the data. I mean, <clears throat> Chris, you probably see this in the library too. I mean, people, some people are, are so willing to, to uh, you know, for ease of access, they're willing to give up security. So it makes them feel comfortable. It's quick and easy. They can connect. They're not even thinking about security. You know, what on the, what on the back end is happening while I'm, uh, easily able to access a, 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 a you know a network at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts or anywhere I go. Really, I mean, even Walmart opens you know has an open network now. Um, so, what do you say about that? I mean, the people that are that don't know the difference. You know, I'm just getting on the network to get on the internet. They're they're assuming that it's safe, even when they come in a library. Chris, you probably agree. Yeah, they're assuming that we've done all these back end things that we're not doing on an open network. You know, they're assuming that we're like tunneling them through a VPN or we're providing them some some secret way to get to the Internet that's safe. Uh, even on our public networks that are wired, I get people that ask us all the time, like, is, is my network safe? Like, it, it's as safe as it can be for a public network. I'm never going to tell you it's OK to enter a credit card or do online banking from a public terminal. Um, you know, so what do you say to people that are just so 
you know, I guess they're, I guess they just, for, for lack of knowledge, uh, they don't know that they're giving up something on one side to have comfort and, and ease of access on the other. Exactly. And to me, it really comes down to just a fundamental lack of awareness of cyberspace. We all remember if we have kids are growing up in the real world, when our kids were three or four years old, we sat them down and we talked to them about don't take candy from strangers, don't talk to strangers. I know my youngest used to think it was fun when I would pick her up from kindergarten. She would scream, stranger danger, stranger danger. <laughs> and, and the sheriff would come and I'm like, honey, this isn't funny if daddy gets arrested and my little one's like, oh no, that would be hysterical, right? You can tell she's my kid. So we trained our kids and most of us understand the dangers of the real world. We're, we're careful in how we drive. We know to stop at red lights. These are things that have been embedded into us. But then many of us, when we were 20 or 30, or if we have kids when they were four or five years old, we just take a phone, we just plug to the internet, and nobody gave us any awareness. Nobody told us about the dangers. And everyone falsely assumed it's safe and secure. And that's really the fundamental problem. So people just need to raise the awareness that just like walking down a street in a really bad neighborhood might not be the safe thing to do. Surfing the web in an open public area and entering in password and bank account information without any extra level of protection is just not a good thing to do. And it comes down to this. If I'm a attacker and I want to break in and steal a lot of records, many people think they're going to go after a large bank. That's actually false because these large banks they're spending millions on security. They have hundreds of people. It's really hard to break into a bank and steal a million records. But what if I just go to a library or a coffee shop or an airport and I just target individuals? I could target a million individuals, steal all their account information, and it's going to be quicker and easier and faster than going after that large bank. So people need to remember that individually you're a bigger target. And you just need to start practicing some basic hygiene of being careful of where you enter passwords, where you uh, enter in your banking information, and just have a little more situational awareness. You know what I've noticed is that the people think that somebody else is doing the job. So the library will do the job. The website they're visiting will do the job. The bank will do the job. My cell phone will do the job. They don't really think of it as a personal responsibility. They think of it as an outside you know, responsibility. Exactly. And it's one of those things where I view cybersecurity very much like an alarm system in a home. When do most people purchase an alarm system? After they get After broken they into, right? robbed, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or a friend's been robbed. So, so most people assume it's somebody else's responsibility until they have identity theft, until their bank account has been wiped out, until they've been targeted. And then all of a sudden, they become very, very aware. The problem is your average identity theft is going to cost you about $5,000 and 300 hours of your time. So what I really try to tell people is you can either be proactive and do it today and be aware, or you can wait six, nine, or 12 months. It will happen to you. You can have to spend $6,000 and 300 hours and then eventually learn your lesson. You're going to pay the piper. You get to choose which option you want. Well, it's funny you said that because that happened to me, I guess it was about four or five years ago. It was um, through the IRS. Um, and from best I can I can estimate, it wasn't something that I did through my own fault. It had to do with a job that I applied for for the federal government. And that's how the hack went through and they 
tried to um, do a um, a large um, tax return in my name. So it it you're right. It's th- about 300 hours worth of calling this agency and that agency and and getting all the the credit things up and lo- up and running and you know all your credit monitoring and and then following up with police departments who really don't do anything and and all this other stuff. It's all a bunch of and it, our police department said it's all paper tiger kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it, in my case, it wasn't necessarily a cybersecurity risk on my end as much as it was the federal government that let it out, and they got a hold of my social security number, and then from there, they got someplace else and, got, and linked my wife to it, and they got both of us. So now every time we file a tax return, we get a PIN number from the IRS starting in January, and we can't we cannot file electronically without that PIN number. But, but, but even with that, a lot of people don't realize a lot of these forms when you apply for jobs or even go to doctor's offices and they ask for your social security number, it's optional. It, it is not required and you do not have to put it down on paper. So that's just a simple example is probably for the last seven years, I have never, ever, ever put down my social security number, even when I buy cars. And it's so funny because they're like, uh, Eric, we need your social security number or we can't sell you a car. I'm like, okay, I guess you're not selling me a car. I said, if, if you want to lose my business, right, and you don't want to sell me that car, that's great. You know something? They get religion really quickly. When they, when they realize it's like, <laughs> do you want my $50,000 or without my social or do you want my social and I'm going to leave? All of a sudden, they can process it without your social. So I would just warn people, be very careful of your personal information, your personal data. People are going to ask for it. But you don't have to provide it. You know, and that's really interesting, too, because every time I go to my doctor's office, they want my social number again. And now I'm physically writing it on a piece of paper, which, you know, it's one thing. Yeah, digitally it's there and whoever can get it can get it. it. But it's another thing when it's a piece of paper because now multiple eyes can see it in real time. And who knows what happens to that piece of paper once they're done with it. And, you know, you're filling out the same form every time you go to the doctor. Yeah, Chris, what was that number again? (laughs) (laughs) Eight six seven five three zero nine. God, I got it. All right. <laughs> and Chris, you bring, you bring up a great point where even paper is more vulnerable. There was actually a scam in one of the large hospitals in Chicago where they actually stole 5,000 patient records. And you know what they did? They showed up in the evening dressed as sanitation workers, and they just emptied the trash But instead of taking it to the junkyard, they took it to a factory, they opened it up, and you'd be amazed of how many pieces of paper were not shredded, were not ripped up correctly, and they were able to pull all that information right from the garbage. And, you know, you're making me laugh, and this is kind of not really on point, but it it makes me laugh because, Eric, you and I both grew up in cop families where, I mean, when your dad threw out a magazine, what did he do? He always ripped off the back page with the name and address on it, right? And cut it up with scissors. Yeah. yeah, so I still do that. And my wife is like, what are you doing? I'm like, you don't you know what information well. is there. And now there's more information on that back cover than there ever has been before. There's customer numbers. There's ID numbers. There's all this other stuff that's linking you to that account. So you, you can imagine, like, my wife looks at me and is like, oh, Chris, what are you doing? Like, that's why the shredder is right next to the garbage can. It's so funny. So let's move on to passwords. Ugh, passwords. Knowing what you know, what is really a secure password, and what are your feelings about those password managers, managers, and even your device, even you know, like either auto-generating passwords or saving passwords like Google or Apple, and when does Skynet come and use them against us? 
because I used to tell seniors, you know, in talking about password security and, and you know, waste because the biggest battle with with helping seniors with their tech is they don't remember their passwords. So I always tell them, I ask them, you know, who remembers their first phone number? And, you know, when you're dealing with seniors, they still remember the days of, you know, my phone number was Klondike3942. Um, you know, that's a great password because I don't think there's going to be records going back that far that can pull your old phone records up that say, you know, Klondike and then four or five numbers. So I thought that was an effective strategy because they could remember it. Or maybe their uh, address when they were growing up back in the 50s or something like that. But, you know, tell us about passwords and what your what your philosophy is on passwords and those password managers. So so your best bet, as I mentioned a little earlier, is if at all possible to use two-factor authentication. This is where you get a new password each time. If that's not possible, then my next recommendation is going to be try to have one device that you use to log in to most of your website. So I have an iPad that I use when I'm banking, doing all those other factors, and I let it auto-generate. The the latest version of iOS actually does a really good job with auto-generation. They're really hard. They automatically change, and they're fully encrypted on your system. So so that would actually be the next best bet. If you can't do either one of those, then I would much rather you use a password manager like Password Vault, where it stores your passwords. That is much better than using the same password for every single device because these passwords are going to be found out eventually. The the, the other thing, Chris, hate to uh, scare you a little bit, but a lot of these attackers, they have databases of street name, street numbers, and all those factors. So so even something where you're using a, a street name with a phone number or things like that are not really as secure as you want. If you're going to pick your own, your best bet is to pick a phrase and use the first letter of each word. So for example, one of my old passwords, I don't use it anymore. I can see Bob wants to write this one down. Uh, <laughs> is, uh, uh, my first son was born at Fairfax Hospital at 1040 a.m. I will never forget that. Right? I'll always remember when my son was born, where he was born. Now, if I use those words, those are pretty weak passwords. What if I take the first letter? So my first son, so uppercase M, number one, WS, the at symbol, uppercase F, uppercase A. So now you have a pretty complex looking password that's very easy to remember. So what I always say is if you're not going to use auto generation or two factor, pick a phrase that you'll always remember and then just use the first letter of each word, and now it's very hard for the adversary and very easy for you. You know, that's interesting because I have, I have a password strategy too, and, uh, and don't laugh too hard, okay? Um, so back in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I worked in the New York State court system, we used, okay, you ready, Eric? Group-wise, he's not laughing. I'm sorry. I know, group-wise. <laughs> and they gave us a six-digit password. Three letters, three numbers, because that was pretty standard for Windows NT at the time. Yep. So, and I also have my father's shield number for when he was a police officer. And I was looking at old photos, and I had found a picture of my mother's car when I was a kid, and I always remember that license plate number. Now we're talking like the really, really old early seventies license plate number. And I checked; you can't run those old numbers because I tried. And I have those that. Those three things in combinations where I can actually 
switch the combination of them where one time this was first and this is second and this is third and another time they would be you know in different orders so yes they're different passwords but they are um you know but there's something that I can easily remember and they're I think that they're random enough that if somebody went to that kind of trouble to find those things out they would be wasting their time because they're really not going to get too much from me and then as he's feverishly typing on his keyboard saying is your password Exactly. I'm just tracking it now. No, that that, that works. The only thing I would say is you need to be longer because six characters is not long enough. Oh, no. This is like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 characters. Yeah. But but the thing you have to remember is uh, the longer you have a password, the more exposed it is. Mm-hmm. So even if you have great passwords, you still want to be in the habit of every six, nine months to really change that. Because I know people with their Gmail or their bank accounts, they've had the same password for two or three years. And I don't care how long it is, that, that's going to eventually uh, get broken and get weaker over time. It, right. And you know what, uh, Dr. Cole, so the, the breach doesn't really come on the person's phone or on the person's laptop. The breach can always come from the person's bank or the person's uh, Facebook account, the person's Gmail account. And that's the, so they breach that database. They get the list of all those passwords that are on the server side of the host. Those are the ones that the dark web and then they're out there and the person thinks well oh my god i had this so secure on my phone this and that it has nothing to do with your personal in your four walls or where you work or your devices it gets breached on the host end right exactly and what i always tell folks is that they always think it's the prevention aspect so we don't want somebody to get my password i don't want somebody to find out my password let me help you out here they're going to get it the way you do cyber security is timely detection so you want to go in and make sure that if somebody does get in to your email, they get into your bank, they get into your records, you know about it within an hour and you can take action. So, so to me, yes, passwords are important, but the alerting and the detection is really the critical part of protecting your information. Right. So now that we're both in Chris's account, how long does he have to secure those accounts? <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, just head over. Uh, it's about three hours. Head over to the BMW dealership, and I'll have the new uh, BMW wait for you, courtesy of Chris. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Absolutely. So uh, can you tell us about Anchor Consulting and some of the work that you do? Uh, sure. I'm assuming you mean secure Anchor uh, Consulting. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going by Chris's notes. I'm uh. sorry. I'm sorry, Eric. It says right no, here, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Anchor <laughs> Consulting. I'd like to make a point that Chris is wrong. It's really secure <laughs> Anchor Consulting. Go ahead. So Go ahead, Dr. Cole, as you were. Yeah, it's secure-anchor.com is my website. Yeah, so Secure Anchor is a company I've been running for uh, 12 years. Uh, I, I purposely kept it fairly small. It's about 30 people. And we really focus on helping organizations uh, understand the danger. So we do a lot of security awareness. I travel around the world doing awareness sessions for, well, I used to before the COVID, uh, but a large number of people, executives. And then we also put together security roadmaps to help organizations uh, implement effective security that works. Sounds very fancy. I'm a fancy guy, man. I'm fan. Uh, you see, you don't have me on video, but I have my fancy jacket on. And it's hysterical that you're actually wearing a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, I know you have to leave us, but I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and and chatting about these different things. We'd love to have you back on again to talk about some more stuff. Oh, this was awesome, man. I I feel like I had fun and got, uh, got hooked up with old friends. So my pleasure. And yeah, I'd love to come back. Awesome. So uh, we will make that happen in the next maybe couple of months or so. 
and we'll have we'll that have sounds a good time. perfect thanks guys all right thanks for coming on eric i appreciate it thank you eric take care we have come to the end of another episode of the library pros and we thank you for listening if you have any questions or comments on this or any episode click on the contact us form on our website thelibrarypros.com Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by The Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachin Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Kristen Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachin Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch. <laughs>